introduce you to uh, a musician who had trouble figuring out how to make CDs for his friends and realized that other musicians might have the same problem and created CD Baby, which was a huge hit. Uh, he um, sold that, couldn't figure out what to do with the money. Are you going to tell him about that, or should I? Okay, he'll tell you about that. Um, and is currently working on something called Muckwork, uh, which is not yet launched, I believe, unless I'm not totally no, up to date. So stealth mode, not exactly. No, not at all. He'll tell you about that too. Lazy. Please welcome Derek Sivers. Thanks. <laughs> no, I'm good. Is it up there? Okay. So you know, when you do a talk at a conference like this, you have to try to guess what people want to hear. And you know, we learn from being here. It's unwise to guess, so I figured I might as well do some A-B testing and let you guys choose what talk you wanted. So uh, take a minute to look at the screen. Originally, I, I came you know, in the program. I was going to do talk A, and because I kind of thought that this was more of a straight up, just give us the facts kind of conference. And as I've been here for the last few days, we've heard some amazing stories from people that we can kind of learn from what, you know, learn from mistakes and learn from successes. So, uh, okay, did you, everybody see the table of contents here? Talk A, talk B. Okay, talk A, talk B. Uh, talk B, if you want the full version of it, has a subtitle of how I screwed up so badly I had to sell, but we can give the short version. So, I figured if I had you just choose between talk A and talk B, then a certain number of people would be kind of disappointed, like, hey man, can, I, can you give me talk A later? You know? So, I made sure I could do this last night. Um, oh wow, the time thing is counting up. Okay, good. Um, so if you want, I can, fit both talk A and B into 15 minutes each. So show of hands, even if you don't ordinarily raise your hands, please, just for this sake. Uh, option number one for me to do just talk A, the art of profitability. A wildly popular talk. Uh, option two, just talk B, how I sold my company, including the dirty details. Surprising, okay, talk three, or option three, combining A and B, both. Oh, it's kind of a toss up between More passionate users for option two. All right. Well, then, uh, then just in case, I was prepared to give a one-minute version of the art of profitability. So let's see. <laughs> uh, doubling your prices can sometimes increase sales. A friend of mine, a puppeteer, doubled his rates because he wanted more time to spend with his kids. Some doctors in China charge you uh, when you're healthy, not when you're sick, so it's in their best interest to get you healthy again so that you continue to pay them. When you're sick, you don't have to pay them because they failed at their job. Uh, free conference call makes the calls free because they use something called traffic pumping um, so that the rural long-distance carriers actually pay them for every minute you call them. Better Place, Shy Agassi, uh, gives away the car so that you use their electric uh, system. Uh, it's good to have more than one profit model. Sometimes we have one profit model, but you're kind of like this pedestal. If you get a crack in the pedestal, if you only have one profit model, it all crashes. So we think, okay, well, I'll have two profit models. I'll be like Tarzan, where you kind of like, you're holding onto one vine, and then the next vine is coming up soon. And you're like, okay, I've got my next profit model ready, but the problem is you're still kind of at risk if somebody snaps your vine. Do you see the punchline in this slide? Yeah, I didn't at first. Um, so I always say it's good to kind of be like a table with many legs, uh, many profit models, uh, so that anyone can crack and you're not devastated. So I was gonna talk about some of those, but I guess they're pretty obvious. The, the short, uh, what is that, TL, 
semicolon dr version of this is there's a book called The Art of Profitability that I highly recommend. <laughs> and most of what I was going to talk about is better said in that. So I was just going to be like a sales pitch for that book. Great stuff. So write down that book if you want to see what my first talk would have been. How's that for a one-minute version? All right. Now, this is mostly kind of influenced by uh, dinner last night, uh, where we were just starting to tell stories. And uh, Rob said, man, you should tell the long version of that story tomorrow. So that's why I kind of made this option to tell the long version of how and why I sold my company and some uh, learned from my mistakes and how I screwed up so badly that I had to sell. Uh, so there's me. My name is Derek Sivers. My contact info. This was my company. Um, in yeah, 1997, I was just a musician selling my own CDs. And uh, at the time, it was before PayPal, and Amazon was still just a bookstore. So um, I built a little online shopping cart just to sell my CD. But it took about $1,000 in setup fees because to get a credit card merchant account was really tough. I don't know if you remember, like you had to, they sent inspectors out to my location to make sure I was a valid business. I had to incorporate, I had to set up another bank account. It was three months of back and forth paperwork just to get a credit card merchant account. And then I didn't know anything about programming, so I copied some CGI bin Perl scripts out of a book. And after three months of hard work, I had a buy now button on my website. And uh, it was really just to sell my own CD. It wasn't CD Baby, it was just my band's website. Uh, but after I did that, some of my musician friends in New York said, hey, man, do you think you could sell my CD through that thing? I was like, mm, I guess. So um, actually, here's a little story I haven't told in a long time, but this is the right place for it. Uh, once a few friends started asking me if I would sell their CD, I realized I had accidentally started a business. So got the domain name CD Baby, took my friends off of my own band's website and put them there. But I was trying to think, like at the time, I was just doing it as a favor, and I needed a business model. So uh, I went down to the local record store in Woodstock, New York, which is just a little converted house, tiny little thing. And on the counter were a few local musicians from the Woodstock area doing consignment sales. And I asked the woman that ran the store, I said, how does this work um, to, if I wanted to sell my CD through you? And she said, well, you set your selling price at whatever you want. We just keep a flat $4 per CD sold and just come by no more than once a week and we'll pay you for any sales. I said, okay. I went home to cdbaby.com. I said, here's how it works. You set your selling price at whatever you want. We keep a flat $4 per CD sold. We'll pay you every week. I was like, it works for them. It works for me. And what's kind of cute is that, um, that it kept that same business. I mean, that is still the same business model to this day. You know, you sell a CD through CD Baby. You set the selling price at whatever you want. We keep $4. The only thing I changed is that for the first, uh, for the first six months or so, I was really just doing it as a favor, because everybody was kind of a friend of a friend. It was my original few friends and then friends of theirs. But then strangers started calling, and then people were sending me all this stuff, and I was spending a few hours a day just setting up people's albums. And it was about 45 minutes of work to put an album on CD Baby. Uh, so I figured, I need to start charging something. And I was kind of on the fence about this, about whether to charge just for the setup. And then some dude in California sent me a giant box of 20 different albums he had released with a note saying, I couldn't sell these things, maybe you can, good luck. I was like, oh god. It took me like six hours to set them all up in the store. I was like, okay, that's it, I'm charging something. So I originally charged $25, and then I realized that I think like in the brain, 
$35 shares the same little space in your brain as 25 bucks, so I bumped it up to 35 bucks and it stays there to this day. So sometimes you, know, you think that somebody's figured out these numbers or crunched it and made projections, but sometimes you just pull it out of your ass. So um, I just wanted to give this context because the deal was, uh, this was really fun to me. I really loved doing CD Baby. It was a lifestyle business. And after a few years, uh, I mean, there were no competitors at all. Nobody felt that this market of selling independent uh, musicians' CDs was worth dealing with. So there's just nobody else doing it. Um, so we got a lot of attention after a few years, and, and NPR did this interview with me where everybody wanted to know, especially during the dot-com boom, so what's your exit plan? Are you going to sell to the big guys? Are you Are going to cash out? Are you going to do an IPO? And I said, no, no, no. I'm just going to do this for the rest of my life. I'm going to be the last employee when nobody wants to buy CDs anymore. I'll just be the one guy sending out the one CD a day to the one person on left on earth who wants it. And I really meant it. Like I, I just meant to do this for my whole life. So around 2007, um, I didn't know anything about programming when I started. But over the years, I got really, really into it. And it just became my real passion. So by 2007, uh, CD Baby had been around for nine years. And I'd learned a lot learned about object-oriented programming and encapsulation and really smart things like that. But my code running CD Baby was just this big pile of spaghetti. So 2007, I kind of like left the office. I punched out. I went off to London, and I got some seclusion. And I rewrote the software start to finish. Uh, and it was awesome. It was still to this date. It was like the culmination of everything I ever learned. It was beautiful. And you look at the code. It's like the, my proudest thing I've ever done to date was that code. Uh, and the reason I'm mentioning this is that uh, shortly after that, I kind of we launched it. It was a great Christmas. Uh, there were no bugs. Everything worked wonderfully well. Everybody loved the new version. And I felt done. I just kind of felt like all of the things I wanted to do after that were kind of incremental. And this is the part of the story where it actually becomes useful to you, I hope. Um, because sometimes you, you, know, you start a company and you set out with a certain vision of we're going to do this and this and that. And at some point, you might hit it. You might hit the complete the vision that you had. And all of the ideas I had after that were really like things that were going to take a lot of work for very little return. Like I wanted to make our whole website multi-currency. But to go into everywhere where it was manipulating numbers and change it into a real kind of like a money object instead of just a floating point was going to take you know weeks and weeks and weeks. And in return for what? Some people around the world being happy that we were multi-currency. But I wanted to do that. I was like, OK, well, that's one of my projects. I wanted to have multiple warehouses, because we had a lot of international customers that we're shipping physical CDs to. And I thought, wouldn't it be good to have you know, a warehouse in, say, in England and a warehouse in Singapore, something like that? And, um, but again, it would have taken so much work to make that change. So I felt this kind of slumped shoulders feeling of, uh, wow, you know, I could put months and months of work into this for not very much return. And I was just feeling very done. So um, I talked to uh, Seth Godin about uh, this feeling. He's always been kind of a, a mentor of mine. And he said, after kind of I described the whole thing to him, he said, well, you know what? If you care, sell. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you're doing your clients a disservice by remaining at the helm of this company. Your users are more passionate about this than you are. You're over it. You're not passionate about this anymore. They are. They have these careers that they want to grow, and you don't really want to grow your business anymore. You're actually doing them harm by remaining at the helm. And I went, whoa. 
that was powerful. And then I saw this. Uh, take a second to digest that, because it hit me really hard. Sometimes we think of what we're doing as always going up and up and up, and it's always going to grow and grow and grow. And I kind of forgot that there is this decline at some point in every business's history. And when I looked at those uh, descriptions at the bottom of, this, of the picture, I realized that all of the adjectives under the maturity bump were the ones that applied to where I was at now. And I figured, wow, you know, any five-year-old could look at that and you could say, hey, when do you think would be a good time to sell? And they'd go, <laughs> so um, that hit me really hard, you know, because I mean, I really did mean it. Like I wanted to do this company for the rest of my life. And once I saw this and talked with Seth and realized where I was at, um, especially this image hit me really hard. And I started for the first time thinking of selling. Um, so Rob, the story that I promised I would tell is since you guys voted for the ugly version of this, uh, the stuff that I've never told is the other uh, biggest influence on why I decided to sell, which is kind of the how badly I fucked up part. Uh, so by any chance, did somebody here read a book called um, What Got You There Won't Get, What Got You Here Won't Get You There? Does that sound familiar? It's a couple of people. Okay, it's this amazing, oh, Joel, you read it? Oh, wow. <laughs> so uh, it is, um, it's a book about management and kind of um, saying, you know, the, the skills that got you to a certain point in your career are usually based more on uh, skill and your actual abilities. But to get to the next level in anything you want to do in life, it is more about interaction with other people. And you can't just rely on your introverted, hardcore skills. And it talks very specifically about being a manager of groups and being a leader and, and how badly we often mess up. Um, do things like just kind of going into a room of people and saying, okay, well, here's my new vision for what we're going to do with this plan. So, okay, everybody got it? Okay, so go. And then getting upset two months later when you find out that it's not being done. Uh, this book was so scathing. It kind of felt like, uh, like he'd been hiding under my desk for two years, writing down notes on what not to do, and he wrote his book from that. Because as I read it, I was just like, oh my God, I've just been doing everything wrong. And now I see why my employees hated me so much. So we're going to talk about that for a minute. Um, there, uh, for the first six years of CD Baby, I was very proud. Uh, well, actually, no, sorry. For the first three years, I was very hands-on. Everything was there. It was just a small little group. Uh, I did the whole first year myself. Didn't hire my first employee till after a year. Then it was just two employees, then four. And so really at about the four-year mark, there were only 20 employees. But I felt that uh, my whole job was just answering people's questions. It was like all day long, every five minutes was, hey, Derek, there's this guy on the phone that wants to know, you know, he, he signed up, but now he wants to change his artwork. What do we tell him? And I used to just say, okay, well, here, I'll handle it. I'll talk to the guy. And then you know, five minutes later, it'd be like, hey, Derek, what do we do in a case where somebody on this, and they ordered two, but they want one, but we already sent this? And, and I'd say, okay, I'll take care of that. And I realized that at that point, I might as well just bring a stool into the hallway in the office and just show up at 9 a.m. and just answer my employees' questions all day. Because I wasn't I, getting the time to do anything but answer questions. So I realized that this was kind of a, a trap, that this was a dead end. Um, and I was miserable. And in fact, I, I decided I was going to move to Hawaii. I was going to bring my little Unix programming laptop and the stack of books. And I was going to go to Hawaii and not give them my phone number and run away. Uh, 
And then I realized, that I actually like reserved an apartment, uh, booked the plane ticket, and then realized that I was running from my problems instead of dealing with them. And uh, so I decided, all right, no, I'm gonna fix this instead. And then I realized that really it was one person that was kind of the core of all these questions. So I let her go the next day and hired the next customer service person who was amazing. The reason I'm giving this background is I decided to take a new approach where I was going to show everybody there everything I knew. So anytime one of these questions came up, um, hey Derek, this guy wants to know, what do we do in this? Every time one of those would come up, I'd kind of gather everybody around saying, okay everybody, I need you to all know the answer to this question. Anytime somebody wants such and such done, and we do this, our policy is this. And here's why, here's my thought process behind that. Because we can take a little $15 hit, it doesn't matter because it's going to make them so happy that word of mouth will spread. Okay, everybody have this core philosophy? So next time this comes up, you know, nobody would, answer, uh, would ask me anymore. And after about, um, after a few months of this, I became completely unnecessary. Uh, I was just kind of doing the coding of the new future stuff that didn't exist yet, and nobody asked me anything, and pretty soon I, started, I stopped coming into the office and I started working from home even though I was still living in Portland, just a few miles from the office. And then when my girlfriend moved down to Santa Monica, I went, all right, symbolic goodbye. I was like, all right guys, you're on your own. And I went down to Santa Monica. And everything was wonderful for four years. And all, I'd take meetings down in LA and people would say, how do you do it? How are you the president of this company? And they don't even need you? That's amazing, I wish I could do that. And I would tell, I would so smugly tell them, oh, here's how it's done, you know. But now I can look at this in hindsight and tell you um, how I fucked up. Because the reason it worked well for those first four years that I was gone is that everybody was, that was there had been side by side with me and got the vibe of what we were doing. They really understood the company culture. This is why we're doing what we're doing. But when I left in 2002, there were 20 employees. And by 2006, there were 85. And most of them had never met me. And there was this really awkward day when I had to fire my first employee. Everybody pretty much knew him as the boss, and he'd been kind of deteriorating over years um, to the point where everybody was like, what is this? You know, he's not doing anything, and people would complain to me, and I talked with him about it, and I think he was just having too many personal issues. It was time for him to go. So I flew up to Portland um, from LA and wrote him this big kind of why I need to let you go letter and I had to confront him and say, sorry man, I gotta let you go right now and you gotta go. And when I gathered together the employees, imagine this, like 85 faces, I gathered together into the main room and I started reading my um, prepared letter for why I had to fire him and I just started bawling in front of everybody, just like sobbing uncontrollably. And um, uh, the funny thing is afterwards, uh, somebody told me, that what was kind of funny about it is that half the people in the room were like, who's this guy and why is he crying? <laughs> you know, like, they'd never even seen me before. I was like the owner down in LA that like, you know, they'd heard about me, but nobody had ever seen me before. And so, so the problem was, those employees that came in after the first 20, it was like that game of telephone. Like the company culture had kind of gotten past through this game of telephone. So if there were one or two bad customer service em employees that, uh, really didn't have the spirit of it. Sometimes they'd tell other people, well, this is how we do things. And you know what? If somebody's an asshole, just, you know, just hang up on them or whatever. Don't worry about it. And these things were getting communicated without me realizing it. So over the course of a few years, the company culture uh, changed so bad that um, in, on July, July 10th, 2007, was the worst day of my life so far. <laughs> 
because um, we would have these every Tuesday meetings where the company would gather around and talk about whatever was up the issues of the day. And we'd always record the meetings for the benefit of those that couldn't be there. And I think, uh, well, on July 10th, I was the one who wasn't there, and I think they forgot that it was recording because I listened to the MP3 on the server that night to catch up on what I had missed. And my VP, the guy who was like, uh, who had been my roommate for a few months that I hired. He was a really dear friend, and that's why I made him the VP of the company. He was the one that led the meeting, saying, all right, everybody, fuck him. We got to get this guy out of here so we can run the company the way we see fit. And every time he would say something horrible about me, everybody would go, yeah, and, uh, and fuck him. And, and then they were like, making up these stories about like because I wanted to... Uh, because I didn't want to sell single song downloads, I wanted to only sell album downloads, somebody was yelling, he just doesn't care about the musicians anymore. I'm doing this for the musicians and fuck him. And everybody goes, yeah. <laughs> and I'm listening to this MP3 at night, just going like. <laughs> I was just like, what am I doing? I mean, at this point, um, this will come into play later. I don't usually you know, talk money that much, but. I mean, CD Bay was making like a, I was, I was making a net profit of like uh, 200,000 bucks a month. I was fine, and fine enough that I had kind of, you know, I lived simply, I put enough aside that I was going to be fine for a long time, and I was listening to this MP3, kind of going like, what am I doing? I hate this. This is, I'm miserable. I hate them. I hate this. I'm over it. And that's why I told you about the software rewrite. I had kind of completed the new software rewrite, and I was like, I think I'm done. Just... Fuck this, fuck everybody. I'm like not enjoying myself anymore. I need to make a change in my life. So uh, you guys with Root will uh, appreciate this. I went into the server that night and I went into Apache and I typed Apache control, halt. And, um, <laughs> and I, uh, <laughs> so I shut down the site and um, I was sitting there typing out what was going to be the new kind of 404 page where like, you know, no matter what URL you went to on cdbaby.com, it was going to bring you to a page that said, um, Thank you for your business over the years. CD Baby's shut down. We're in the process of sending everybody's CDs back. Um, give us a while to take care of that. Um, we appreciate your business and wish you all the best. And I had typed that, and then I was typing my letter to all the employees, basically saying, you're all fired. <laughs> Sorry to hear you're so miserable about life and everything, but goodbye, and I wish you the best, and we're done here. And but because it was like midnight, you know how that goes. It's like. It's like 1.30 a.m., I'm still trying to perfect my evil letter to all the employees. And, <laughs> and I was getting sleepy. I was like, okay, maybe this isn't the right mindset to be doing this in. So, um, so I was like, all right, Apache control start. <laughs> and um, so I went to sleep. So in the morning, I remembered. I said, wait, I've got a better idea. And it was my original idea when during that dot-com boom, when people were asking, so what's your exit plan? How are you going to sell? Are you going to do an IPO? I'd say, no, I've got a better plan. I'm going to do it like Willy Wonka. I'm going to get, when, the day that I decide that I'm done with this company, I'm going to get five golden tickets and put them into five CDs. And I'm going to loudly announce that there are five golden tickets in the CDs. And people will sell tons and tons and tons of CDs. The musicians will be thrilled. And then whoever finds the five, I'm going to invite them uh, to the CD Baby warehouse. But because I don't have a chocolate river to kind of bump them off into, um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to have the, the five finders of the golden tickets. They'll know that they are the candidates for being the next owner of CD Baby. So they'll kind of uh, prepare their vision of what they would like to make CD, or what CD Baby will be if they are the owner. And I'll invite all the musicians. It'll be a free event. Um, 
and then they'll present it to the musicians, and the musicians will vote on who they want the new owner to be. And then whoever they vote, I'll say, all right, you got it, I'll sign it over like Willie did to Charlie, and I'll say, it's all yours with one condition, you can't sell. So if at any point you're feeling done, it reverts back to me. That'll prevent somebody from making big empty promises and then just turning around and selling it for a bigger price. So that was my plan until uh, a, and I was seriously like pursuing like how do we get these golden tickets made? I was pursuing this plan for a couple days <laughs> until a good dear friend of mine that I thank a lot said, you know, someday you're gonna be like 60 years old and broke and looking for a job and you'll be cursing the day that you took this big giant multi-million dollar asset of yours and just gave it away because you were cranky. I was like, okay, all right. So that's when I kind of went back to this and Seth Godin's advice and deciding to sell. So uh, this is a short talk. I've just got six minutes left. So here's the stuff that I thought you guys might want to know about how that goes. Um, so we've talked about the kind of the emotional side. And to me, that's the biggest one. Like nothing I'm describing after this, nothing was for the money. It was all because of this stuff that I just told you. It was like I was just feeling done with everybody. Um, I was feeling done from a, uh, I was no longer ambitious about this. I had rewrote the software. It was everything I wanted it to be. And I was just feeling done. And I think that's a really good time to get out. And it might happen to you even if you weren't expecting it. So the first time I decided to sell, um, I kind of put out the word a little bit, but I was half-hearted about it. What I was going to do is I was going to sell CD Baby, but I was going to keep Host Baby, my little four-person web hosting company. Um, and I put that out there, and we did an NDA, and I opened up the books, and I got this offer of like 10 million bucks just for CD Baby, but it's gonna be really tricky with the brand names, like, okay, they own this half of the brand name, but I own this half. What about new things with the word baby in it? Are those theirs, are they mine? And it got tricky, and partway through, I just kinda, partially because you know CD Baby was earning like uh, three or four million net profit a year, and somebody was offering me 10 million for it. I was like, no, never mind. So I said, never mind, but then, and I really was starting to carry on kind of half-heartedly with my plan for future development. But then in January 2008, um, in one week I got three offers. Um, and I, I had stopped soliciting these. So um, to explain, over the entire history of CD Baby, over 10 years, I always had kind of like VC people or other companies calling saying, uh, do you want investors? I'd say, no, I'm not looking for any investors. Um, do you want, uh, are you looking for, are you interested in selling? Like mp3.com wanted to buy CD Baby long ago. And I said, it's not for sale. And they said, are you sure? Not even if we're talking billions of dollars? I was like, what are you, Carl Sagan? No. <laughs> um, uh, so I really was not interested in selling before, but I'd always received these offers. So then there was this one week in January where I got three calls. Disc makers, a CD manufacturer, called and said, hey, just so you know, we're really interested in buying CD Baby. I was like, no, I'm not selling. And then this VC firm called uh, with the name of a tree in their name, I forget. And um, they said, uh, hey, you know, we're really interested in buying CD Baby. What do you think? And I said, no, no, just not selling. And then this other distributor I was doing uh, a lot of work with called up and said they were interested in buying CD Baby. And this is seriously on like a Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. And I said, nope, not interested in selling. And over the weekend, I went, take a hint. Like, <laughs> three people in one week, this is some kind of like, you know, seller's market. That's cool. So I, I kind of pulled out my diary and I, said, okay, I've asked myself this question a few times before, but like, what if I decided to sell? And for the first time ever, I was like, that'd be kind of nice. Like, I, it was to me, the biggest thing was like being relieved of all of the kind of, the burdens of being the owner and all that kind of stuff. I was, so I decided to sell. So I called all three companies back and I said, yeah, um, I'll do it. And they kind of worked with my accountant and opened up the books and they had that full kind of, I forget what you call it, the, um, 
forget what the name of that is, that process where, thank you, yeah. <laughs> so they were doing it in parallel, um, but I always kind of had this dream that like Amazon would be a good daddy to my CD baby. So I told a friend of mine who I knew, knew somebody, I said, just tell them I'm interested in selling now. And immediately they were all over it. And uh, what was kind of nice is that all along the selling process, um, I always had multiple buyers. So, any, so I told them my terms. Oh, hold on, this is a slide I should show you. So I decided that, you know, I called some of the people I know that had sold their company and I said, are you happy you sold? Are you sad? What's the upside? What's the downside? And the big downside I heard from people is they said, it's kind of weird now to be an employee at a bigger company when I was always the boss. And now I'm like a guy in the middle somewhere. That's kind of, that feels weird. I was like, yeah, I couldn't do that. So I kind of thought about like in my perfect world, how would the sale go? I thought, okay, well, number one, absolutely. Like the minute the wire transfer's done, I'm out. Like I'm not working for you, I'm not a consultant, I'm not anything, I'm gone. Because I need to just emotionally disconnect from this. Uh, number two, I think I need to keep my database of musicians and customers, because you know what, most of those people were like this. It was like people I met one at a time at conferences over 10 years. I know a lot of them. I'm not gonna like not be allowed to talk to them anymore, so I get to keep my database. And three, I've got a lot of ideas for things I'm gonna do to keep helping musicians. So I'm gonna need a very narrow non-compete, because I'm gonna start a promotions company, I'm gonna start this. And uh, so any, you know, I called back these three companies and said, Here's my three terms. You cool with that? And if not, it's, you know, we have nothing else to talk about. So luckily they were all cool with these three terms. And uh, so what was really nice is along the way, um, Amazon and Disc Makers were both very interested the whole time. I kind of felt that Disc Makers knew my clientele better and I was happier to go with them. And they just kind of came back with like a handshake kind of deal saying, okay, we're, we're looking at about 22 million. I said, cool with me. Uh, and then Amazon was willing to offer a little more money, but I felt that my, I still kind of worried about my long-term reputation, so I wanted my clients in good hands, and I chose disc makers. But the reason I mention this is that along the way, anytime we hit the tiniest little snag in negotiation, I just said, I think we're done here, no, I'm out. Uh, because the guy from Amazon would call me every week to let me know they're still interested. So it was the sweetest possible thing. So, you know, of course my big advice, if you're selling your company, do whatever you can to get multiple people interested because it just puts you in such a wonderful position of not having to compromise what you really want from the sale. Um, and uh, last thing that was kind of weird is I'd always been very open with the employees, but because of this mindset where I really had to be ready to walk away from this deal at any time, there was even something like a week before the, the sale was complete, they wanted to put in one twisty little thing that I didn't like, and I, and I really wholeheartedly told them, no, 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 we're done, I'm out. And they said, no, okay, 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 here you go. Um, so the thing is, my employees started to hear these rumors. Like, what's it, you know, I hear that we're selling to disc makers. Is this true? And I had to just boldface say, nope, absolutely not. Because the truth is, like, until that wire went through, I wasn't selling. I was ready to say no up until that last moment. So that was kind of weird. So uh, the last thing that Joel mentioned um, that I'll end on is, you know, there's this eight months between this handshake deal of kind of, they said 22 million, and then it took eight months for them to get the official kind of bank and the backing and the due diligence and all this stuff to make it official. And I had eight months to say, 22 million? Oh, shit. That's, that's what am I even gonna do with that? I don't even want it. Uh, and, you know, I, I had to ask myself these kind of deep questions, like, if I had, like, if I had 20 million dollars right now, would that change my life in any way? Like, would I do anything differently? And I really thought deeply, I was like, no, nothing. Like, there's nothing I want to buy. I don't want to own a stupid Ferrari or a mansion or something. It's like, that would suck. I, I don't want to feel responsible for that, for life. It's stuff. So 
I told I was talking to my lawyer about this, and I said, you know, I've got a question. Like, I don't. I think I was just mentioning to him, like, I don't even want the money. It's kind of weird. I mean, I just want to know that when I'm 60 years old, I won't be needing to get a job somewhere. In the meantime, that I'll have a comfortable life. But I, I don't want to be one of those people that because they have 20 million dollars, say things like, oh well, I found a nice house for only 10 million, or that you know. <laughs> think it's no big deal to spend $15,000 on virgin upper class to be a little more comfortable for a few hours. Like, I don't want to be in that mindset. I think that would suck. I wouldn't be proud of myself. So I was mentioning to him that um, I didn't even want the money. I just wanted to know that like, for life, I'd just kind of be OK. And he said, well, you know, there's this thing called the Charitable Remainder Unit Trust. In, it's a, I think it's a US only thing. What it means is that he said, why don't you, we could transfer the ownership of the company into the charitable trust now months before the sale, before the sale's complete. And then when Disc Makers buys CD Baby, the money all goes into the trust. But the way that the trust is written is a charitable remainder unit trust means that you as the, I forget what my official term is, the, the payee or the beneficiary or something, will get 5% of the total value of the trust paid out per year. Uh, that's the, the legal minimum. I was asking if I could do 1%, but he's like, no, 5%'s the minimum. Um, and then you just get that for life. And once it's in the charitable trust, it all grows tax-free for life. And best of all, I forgot to mention, like, the reason this all came up is I said, I think I just want to give it all to charity or something, but not until I die, because just in case, you know? Uh, so he said, he said this, is, this is the plan for you then. This is what it's all about. It's like, by putting it into the trust, it is already gone. It's not yours any longer. Um, so it is no longer your assets. It does belong to charity, but it doesn't get paid out until you die. And while you're alive, it pays you this kind of 5% per year for life. It's mainly meant for retiring people that kind of, you know, but, uh, so I thought that was perfect for me. So I put it into the trust, but it wasn't really for any altruistic reason. And honestly, I wasn't even going to ever tell anybody I did this, but then I was like doing some interview and some guy kind of grilled me, like, come on, what'd you do with the money? What'd you do with the money? I was like, uh, all right, I put it into trust. And he wanted to know the details, and so that's how it got out. And, People seem to like the story. But really where it all came from is, have you guys ever read a book called Stumbling on Happiness? Um, absolutely brilliant book. It sounds like a self-helpy title, but if you haven't read it, it's actually a professor of psychology that's been studying happiness for many years, um, has found some amazing counterintuitive things about what actually makes people happy, and it's not what you'd think. And so of course they found out that above a certain level of a kind of basic sustenance, more money doesn't make you happier. Uh, it has almost no effect on your happiness after you've met your basic needs. So that's why I realized, like, all right, well, my basic needs are met, so that's why I'm just going to put it all into the charitable trust. And it sounds like a weird thing to do, but um, I don't know, it just made sense to me, and I, I realized it was just kind of for my own happiness, not really altruistic reasons. Uh, and I think that's it. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> It's funny, it's just like, to come up here and just tell a story, I felt like I was going to come here and give you a whole bunch of useful info, so I hope that was useful, and uh, email me if you have any questions about the art of profitability or something. <laughs> <laughs> um,